Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find him. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what, had, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And now I'm gonna read in Romanian, um, just verses uh, 28 to 35. Când s-a apropiat de satul de la care mergeau, el s-a făcut că vrea să meargă mai departe, dar ei au stăruit de el și au zis, Rămâi cu noi, căci este spre seară și ziua aproape a trecut. Și a intrat să rămână cu ei. Pe când ședea la masă cu ei, a luat pâinea și după ce a rostit binecuvântarea, a frânt-o și le-a dat-o. Atunci li s-au deschis ochii și l-au cunoscut, dar el s-a făcut nevăzut dinaintea lor. Și au zis unul către altul, Nu ne ardea inima în noi când ne vorbea pe drum și ne deschidea scripturile? S-au sculat chiar în ceasul acela, s-au întors în Ierusalim și au găsit pe cei 11 și pe cei ce erau cu ei adunați la un loc și zicând, A înviat Domnul cu adevărat și s-a arătat lui Simon. Și au istorisit ce li se întâmplase pe drum, 
și cum l-a cunoscut la frângerea pâinii. This is the word of the Lord. Sixteen years ago, I climbed Mount Tabor for the first time. I had only been in the Pacific Northwest about 48 hours, and I had just left the office of one of the professors at Western Seminary, which sits at the base of Mount Tabor. I had never been to Portland before, and all I could think was, I do not want to move here. I already did not like the sunless sky, and I was determined not to trade the culture that I knew and people I loved in the name of an adventure. The truth is, I never wanted to come in the first place. A friend bought me a plane ticket to Portland just a few months prior to this visit because he thought I should come to this particular seminary in this particular city. And to be honest, I wasn't even looking at going to seminary, let alone interested in leaving the world that I had known for a defiantly weird one. I remember sitting uh, at the top of Mount Tabor, which I now know is a volcano, yikes. where you can see the view of the whole city. Do you know what I'm talking about? And uh, I remember breathing out and calling to mind a commitment I had made to Jesus just a few days earlier on the plane. I will only come here if you tell me to. A condition I thought would bend in my favor. (laughs) It was then the scene from 45 minutes earlier flashed into my mind. The conversation was your average seminary sales pitch and I was determined not to buy it. And I wasn't. That was until the end of the meeting when I began to feel movement in my body and emotion fill between my eyes. And I offered thanks to the professor and then reached for the door handle and that's when I heard it. Almost more subtle than the air conditioning could feel on my face, I heard God say to me, I am asking you to come here. He spoke whispered to be more accurate. And it was in that moment that I knew that my life would no longer look the way I had hoped and that it might just in fact be better than I expected. It's been 16 years. And I can honestly say that so much undeserved goodness and blessing followed on the heels of that invitation atop that beautiful volcano. I followed the voice of God in obedience. And what followed was a season I thought would be marked by suffering, but instead was full of blessing. One of my closest friends and her husband moved to the Middle East with more conviction and grit than I had ever seen anyone display. Since my friend was young, she wanted to tell people who had a very small chance of knowing about Jesus who he was and how much he loved them. She would have gone to the end of the world and back just so one person who didn't know Jesus would come to know him. Later, when she married a man with a similar conviction, my friends and I knew that it was only a matter of time before they followed that call to a place beyond all of our comfort zones. And in 2016, they heard God speak to them, but specifically this time about a place and a people, the desires that they held to reach unreached people. And so with that go, they went. And in 2017, they sold everything that they had and moved to the Middle East with an eight-month-old baby in tow. Fast forward about two and a half years later, I got a call late one night from that friend. And on that call, through tears and so much heartbreak, she told me that they were coming home. 
You see, the story didn't play out like they had hoped. Once landing in a new country, my friend began to, for the first time in her life, experience signs of depression. Beyond culture shock, her mental state was beginning to change. And while they were working that out, both my friend and her husband experienced moments of significant trauma where their compassion in the culture uh, led to all kinds of exposure to numerous kinds of abuse. To top it all off, the finances they were prepared to cover moved beyond what they could and even while hustling, working late hours at night and early mornings, they were unable to keep up. Nothing had gone the way that they had hoped, nothing had gone the way that they had imagined or even assumed. So on the heels of a global pandemic, they once again sold all that they had, but this time they were headed back to where they started. These friends followed the voice of God in radical obedience. And what followed was not a season of blessing, but of suffering. In the name of hearing God's voice, people have married the love of their life. And they have waited to marry someone who never came. Or married someone who hurt them more deeply than they ever thought possible. In the name of hearing God's voice, people have changed careers leading to flourishing and leading to crisis. In the name of hearing God's voice, people have manipulated politics, ultimately hurting the poor and the voiceless for their own gain. Manipulated spiritually, profiting off the desperation of the hurting and the hungry. And people have led honestly, lived well, and blessed others beyond their wildest dreams. In the name of hearing God's voice, a fugitive shepherd led the world's greatest abolition movement. A prophet prepared Israel, and another pointed to when and how the nightmare would end. An elderly man and woman awaited and were the first to recognize the Messiah. And in the name of hearing God's voice, a murderous prosecutor became the greatest church planter in history. To hear and live by God's voice, it would seem, is among the most powerful and the most painful, most potent and most dangerous aspects of Christian spirituality. Nothing matters more than learning to discern the voice of God for ourselves, and yet few things in our life are more susceptible to pain and abuse and delusion and deception. I mean, who among us hasn't cried out to God and God seemingly says nothing back in the waiting? <laughs> who among us hasn't been hurt by the misuse of God's word by an authority figure? And who among us hasn't been enlivened by the still small whisper of a God who speaks through scripture, through a trusted friend, through the wonder of creation, or through that deep inner knowing, we learn increasingly as we follow the good shepherd. Hearing God might just be the most important thing you ever learn to do, full stop. We've been in a series called Hearing God, listening to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. And in it, we've learned that God speaks through Jesus, the living word, through scripture, the written word, and through the gift of prophecy. Uh, for today is God speaks to the soul, a way of speaking that usually comes in a whisper, what some saints have called a deep inner knowing, 
and what has often been referred to as a still, small voice. So, as a frame for where we're headed, we'll explore that theme in three parts. The Lord was about to pass by, discernment, and practice. Are you ready? Okay. Some of you may need to go back and grab some coffee. The Lord was about to pass by. You ready? All right. Looking back at our text, Luke chapter 24, uh, specifically verse 28, we read this. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. Now this, in my opinion, is undoubtedly the most interesting turn of phrase in the Emmaus account we read just a moment ago. Because it makes you wonder, is this just a charade? Jesus pretending to go on further to bait them into a dinner invitation where he'll reenact the Lord's Supper? Or was the resurrected Jesus really content to spend the entirety of the first Easter Sunday with a couple of people who never realized who he was? Now, as an isolated event, I guess you could come to either conclusion, but this isn't an isolated event. We're gonna rewind in the biblical story all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 19. You can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of context. It's here that we find this dude named Elijah. And Elijah set up a spiritual drama for the ages, a true thespian, challenging a team of hundreds of prophets of Baal to a public showdown calling for the one true God to make himself known. He's a tough dude. And I think you know the story, it's a familiar one to most of us, but here's how it goes. Baal's altar is untouched and at Elijah's prayer, fire consumes Yahweh's altar. And it's a moment. And in fact, it's one of the most standout moments in the whole of the Hebrew Bible, both of God's presence and his power. And this was a moment that really cemented the prophet Elijah as one of the key figures in the biblical story. And it's also the moment that got Elijah and Natu a whole lot of trouble. Because after this moment, he became a wanted man a fugitive and he begins to flee. And what we read about his life is that he ends up living in the wilderness in complete isolation for 40 days post this experience. And then he goes on to climb this mountain called Mount Horeb where he intends to cry out to God. Now, he would have had to make the ascent onto Mount Horeb with great expectation because he knew that Mount Horeb was the mountain that Moses climbed to receive the 10 commandments. He also knew that this was the mountain Moses returned from with his face aglow. So you better believe he wasn't just anticipating another prayer time. His heart would have been at some level full of anticipation about how he'd meet with God in this hallowed ground. That's Elijah, quads burning all the way up to Mount Horeb, burning to experience God. It has to be because he's desperate. He needs God. The God who sent fire, the God who wrote on Moses' tablets, the God whose glow was left on Moses' face. And so we read in 1 Kings 19 that he goes on to say, speak to me, Lord, here I am. And sure enough, he does. 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, verse 11, he says this. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. Familiar? Yeah, you're thinking about some flannel boards, I know. Now after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after a fire came a gentle whisper. 
When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. Now the phrase I wanna draw your attention to isn't the iconic one. It's the one we tend to read over quickly, hardly ever noticing it. Look down with me again if you're in, your, in the Bible at verse 11. He says this, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Interesting. This is the same phrase from Emmaus hundreds of years later. But the plot thickens, I know you were wondering. Because if we rewind this back to Moses in his moment that Elijah is trying to relive in Exodus 33, we read that then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand in a, on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Now, this is arguably the peak moment of intimacy in the whole of the Old Testament, and there it is again, God passing by. Now, this phrase shows up again in Job chapter nine, verses eight and 11, where we read, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea, and when he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Now, that's just a snapshot of the Old Testament. I want us to go back to Jesus, cool? Some of you are like, please, what are you talking about? Totally. Now, uh, while, uh, before uh, Jesus is walked on the road to Emmaus, we find Jesus actually taking another walk, but this time on water. Uh, so Mark chapter six, you don't have to turn there. Uh, we read this, a bit of a story here. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. There's that phrase again. And, and I, I want us just to be clear on something together, can we? Because we're learning here. Um, this was an event that was so important that three out of the four of the reputable biographers decided you can't understand Jesus without this event. And that event was entirely dependent upon the disciples noticing Jesus. Jesus was really willing to just walk right by them on the water and meet them the next morning at the shore. And if that's the case, it makes you wonder if this wasn't the only time he walked on water, right? <laughs> now, let's bring all of that, thank you. Thank you for that feedback. Bringing all of that back with you, let's talk about the road to Emmaus. That morning, Jesus pushed back his own tombstone and he's chosen to spend the day with a couple of disappointed and disillusioned disciples walking away and hanging their heads. And in verse 27, we read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus spends hours talking with them about the Bible, explaining how the whole book points to him and they don't notice he's the guy. Verse 28 and 29, we read again that Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over, and so he went in to stay with them. It's the evening of the original Easter, and Jesus himself had been preaching the first Easter sermon in history, and they don't recognize him. And finally, at the meal, as he breaks the bread, they realize who they're sitting with and who's been walking with them all along. Jesus continued on as if he were going further. The same Jesus content to walk on water right past the disciples in the boat seems then content to walk alongside the disciples all the way to Emmaus and pass right by. 
John chapter one calls Jesus the word, the living whisper of God's voice. And the poetry in this first chapter builds and builds until verse 10 when we read, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. God himself passed right by the vast majority of people who saw him face to face and heard his voice, inviting them to come and follow. This is the world's greatest and most understated tragedy. Our savior so identifies with us that we mostly miss him in our midst. What I'm trying to draw your attention to is that God's native language is a whisper. And a whisper is hard to hear and easy to ignore. What if God's speaking to you far more than you currently know? What if the vast majority of divine instructions or encounters in your life to date are Craigslist missed opportunities or magic moments that could have been, but the Lord passed you by? We tend to miss God in our midst, God speaking to us, not because he's too extraordinary, but too ordinary. Despite the consistent revelation of scripture, we still tend to look for God more in the wind and the earthquake and the fire than in the whisper. We climb our own Mount Horebs with expectation when that preacher comes at that conference, during that worship experience, around this prophetic crew, or even just in a silent retreat or a moment of prayer. So many of us are still pigeonholing God's voice to special times and special places and special methods when all the while he's about to pass by. What if you could know him, not just at the table in the evening, but all along on the road to Emmaus? What if you could hear him, not just on the mountaintop of Mount Horeb, but in the valley of suffering? Our friend Pete Gregg puts it this way, this is important. If we are to ever feel fully safe and truly loved by the Lord of all the earth, we must eventually, like Elijah on Horeb and that couple on the Emmaus Road, learn to listen for his voice in the anticlimax of life's non-events. Now, that statement and all that we've just read begs an obvious question that we have to ask. Why doesn't God yell? You know, like why play it so coy? and make it so hard for us to hear him. Because when God does speak in the most obvious, undeniable ways, it's usually relatively ineffective. Elijah's fire spectacle didn't do much good. In fact, it led to a manhunt, not revival. Jesus's miracles seem only subjectively effective, meaning it's up to the eyes and the ears of the recipient and the onlooking crowd if they recognize God in them or explain them away. Even the empty tomb led not immediately into widespread revival, but to persecution and imprisonment and public lashings for everyone who dared believing it. So maybe God whispers not because he's invasive, but because he's intimate because the louder his voice gets, the more more polarizing he becomes. Because some of us will want to make use of his power for our own vision, and others will want to dismiss his power and hold on to our illusion for control. Maybe God whispers because it's the only way he can get what he most wants, what was lost in Eden, to walk with you and I in the cool of the day, 
to know him and to discover myself known by his presence. There's so much beauty in the fact that God speaks in a whisper and experientially there's probably just as much complication. Complication we can sum up in the term discernment. Martin Luther once said, our nature by the corruption of the first sin can become so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God's towards itself and enjoys them, but it also fails to realize that it is so wickedly, cursedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. Yikes. You and I, this is what he's getting at, we are forever tempted towards self-absorption to make ourselves at least cast members, if not the leading character, to imagine ourselves in the center of the story, dethroning Jesus and confusing the sound of the good shepherd with an imposter. When my ego becomes the ear I'm listening from rather than my soul, I risk the possibility of my spiritual life devolving into a self-centered narcissism focused on me, not thee. The aim of spiritual formation to become like Christ, a gift of other-centered love, then gets subtly replaced by a new goal for an emotional high or a centered balance or a good feeling. Saint Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuit tradition and likely the most broadly respected historic figure when it comes to the spiritual practice of discernment, taught that when our spiritual enemy can't deceive us as an angel of darkness, he comes instead disguised as an angel of light. Meaning, Satan, the deceiver, the father of lies, can even turn my experience of God's presence into a spiritual maturity inhibitor. With great intentions, I replace my soul, the deepest part of me, with my ego, the most shallow part of me and ask God to become some kind of coping mechanism or motivational speaker rather than a loving and transforming father. Are you with me? Discernment then is the spiritual practice of differentiating between my ego and God's voice. And if we're to talk about hearing the voice of God, we have to talk about the practice of discernment and the reality of distraction. So let's start where most of you are right now, distraction. <laughs> Thought I'd try that joke, I don't know. I think, it, I think it was good, so let's start with that. In our text in verse 15 we read, as they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. That's an intense phrase. They were kept from recognizing him. So there's more going on here than just poor recall or plain human error. It seems that greater forces are at play, but what are those forces? In his book, How to Hear God, Pete Gregg breaks it down this way, physiological, psychological, and spiritual distractions. And because I'm sort of friends with him and because Tyler's very good friends with him, I figured he wouldn't mind if we borrowed that framework for a few minutes, okay? It's not stealing, it's borrowing. Okay, so let's start with the physiological distraction. We can gather, at least from Jesus' resurrection appearances, that he seemed to look different post-resurrection. Frequently, he's recognized, or he's not recognized when people first come upon him. And with that, we have to wonder if the change in Jesus is happening within him or within the eye of the beholder. 
In my own journey, I've been slowest to recognize God when I'm still looking for him in the form of yesterday. See, I regularly become acquainted with God in a particular season of my life. The themes of his work within me, the predictable, 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 predictable methods and places of finding him and the ways I use to really discern his presence. But when seasons begin to change outside of my control, I become spiritually disoriented for a time. And suddenly finding him in these spaces to be distant and hard to find. That is until I catch up to the change of season and then finding his presence today is even better than the ways of yesterday. But this season's bound to change the same way the last one did. So was it that Jesus looked different or that those slow to recognize him were still looking for him in the ways of yesterday? Yesterday's gone. In just 72 hours, the disciples went from sure that they knew where the story was going, ready to usher in the kingdom as the king made his valiant entrance into the city to disoriented and doubting and running with their tails tucked. And now on the other side of his victory and their failure, Jesus seems far off and hard to find, hard to recognize even when he's standing right in front of them, even when he's speaking to them. Do you know that experience? The change of a season, the spiritual disorientation where you're searching everywhere for yesterday's God and yesterday's ways, but it's today. And he is right in front of you. But recognizing him means letting your eyes adjust. The spiritual life is dependent on the willingness to adapt to an unchanging God, but to changing seasons. We miss God in the well-intentioned attempt to live in yesterday, today. To insist on the God you knew and the story you'd written for him instead of the one he's writing for you as he walks beside you. This is a distraction. Now, let's talk about a psychological distraction. Imagine the disciples had 0% expectation they'd run into Jesus on the road to Emmaus because that's the percentage I would have, yeah? Like, hey man, crucified about 48 hours ago or whatever, this is weird. I guess it's 72, let's do the math. So who could blame them, right? They had seen this man crucified and they weren't expecting to see him. Inattention blindness is a well-documented psychological condition in which our brains fail to perceive something right in front of us because it contradicts the assumptions and our expectations. Classic examples of this are a magician's sleight of hand or texting while driving. One psychologist explains it as watching a film set in the Roman Empire and failing to spot the fatal flaw of a jet plane passing in the background of the climactic scene. But of course it could work the opposite way too. You're so distracted by the jet that you elbow your friend and point out the flaw. And you're so distracted that you miss the climactic scene of the story you've been drawn into since the opening credits. And what happens on the road to Emmaus is a lot like that. Two disciples drawn in from the opening credits, so distracted by the cross, which to them is a flaw and an unforgivable oversight by the director, that you miss the climactic scene even while you're a cast member in it. Do you know that experience? Deaf to God's voice and blind to his image, all because you've already written the ending in your head. 
that this is how the story is supposed to go. Now third, Pete mentions spiritual distraction. Luke, in our text, does seem to indicate that what's going on here with the disciples is more than just a physical or psychological response. They were kept from recognizing him. That's the phrase, they were kept from. The English kept is the Greek krateo, literally meaning their eyes were overruled or taken custody or seized. So some spiritual force is actively involved in their blindness, and depending on your theology, you may have a different interpretation of the active agent behind the force, but there's something happening. The point I wanna make is the way the phrase is turned around at the other end of the story. If you look down at verse 31, we read, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Again, the text, while note demonstrative, seems to indicate an active agent, a spiritual force opening their eyes to the Holy Spirit. You see, we can't recognize Jesus by ourselves. We need the help of the Holy Spirit who opens up our eyes and ears. Meaning, learning to hear God's voice is not a method or a technique, but a grace, a gift that's given. Now, on the other side of the coin, discernment brings clarity out of the confusion of our many distractions. If we rewind Elijah's story before the still small whisper on Mount Horeb or before the divine fire on Mount Carmel, you'll discover a seemingly random story that I believe is an incredible gift because it allows us to watch a biblical prophet discern God's voice. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we read, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide, the to, uh, hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you there with food. Think about this. You don't know this, but this is what's going on. In the midst of a heightened political corruption, a whole scandal, this whole thing's happening, foreign occupation and oppression, God tells Elijah to go live on his own in the wilderness, drinking from a brook, and being delivered groceries by ravens. Can you imagine ravens working for Instacart? <laughs> wow. This is an invitation to wild, costly, surrendered obedience. Not to mention it seems hyper unproductive. This in no way addresses the corruption, occupation, and oppression that Elijah and presumably God is urgently concerned about. And Elijah still does it. He lives by the brook and eats groceries from the ravens. And he says yes to God. And God proves faithful and none of it seems urgently helpful or important. So if you keep reading on in the text, you'll read this line. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Okay, so I skipped a part here. So let me kind of go back a little bit. At God's direction in the first verse of this chapter, Elijah prophesies a multiple year drought in the land. And then God sends him to live by a brook a water source dependent on rain. Seems like conflicting messages, but cool. Elijah follows anyway. He prophesies the drought, he lives by the brook, and God is faithful. Until, predictably, the brook dries up because, you know, the whole drought thing. So, from Elijah's perspective, God is speaking to him, he's radically saying yes, and the results are occasionally miraculous, but just as often seemingly unproductive and the results don't seem to be aimed at the core issue, corruption, occupation, and oppression. So here, 
the question at the heart of Elijah's early years is, would God do all of this just so Elijah could learn his voice? Also, Elijah would trust God enough to call down fire on Mount Carmel. Also, Elijah would know God deeply enough to search him out when times got tough on the other side of this miraculous fire. And another more personal question lies at the heart of Elijah's early years. When was the last time I heard God call me to something costly and seemingly unproductive with no explanation whatsoever and no guarantee of a happy ending? God's whispers tend to be equal parts enlivening and terrifying, resonating deeply in our spirits and filling us with life while also requiring risk and coming at a cost. We never graduate from this. We never achieve some stage of discipleship that God's voice becomes comfort without trepidation, all blessing with no cost, all fruit with no risk. We never graduate. Elijah didn't, and we don't either. Living and leading by God's voice is not a method. It's a radical commitment to terrifying obedience and a stubborn resilience to risk foolishness. Spiritual leadership, at least the way we defined it on our Bridgetown staff, is the willingness to risk foolishness in public. And if that seems childish to you, I'd humbly ask what you think Noah was doing when he built the ark or what Moses was doing at the Red Sea, or what Esther was doing when she penciled her name in the king's business calendar, or what Mary was doing when she claimed the Father is God himself, or what Peter was doing when he stood to address the crowds at Pentecost, or what Paul was doing the first time he told his former colleagues about this blinding light. Psalm 42, verse seven says, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Deep calls to deep. Let's just say for a minute, can you do a little thought experiment with me? All right, let's just say for a minute that I'm in an argument with my best friend, Heidi, who's on the front row. Let's just say, hypothetically, that when on the occasion we've had to share a bed, she does a cute yet dynamic moan all throughout the night. So when I try to sleep and even have an important day ahead, I can't because I'm focused on the moaning throughout the night. Let's just say hypothetically, all totally hypothetical. Let's just say this might be a reoccurrence in our relationship, okay? Hypothetical, totes. Now, in that moment, you might ask me, specifically in the middle of the night when I'm staring at her body, wondering what's happening. <laughs> Bethany, how do you feel about Heidi? I could share my immediate reaction. And it might sound something like this. I feel like she needs to turn over and maybe tape her mouth shut. <laughs> also, I'm thinking, what is she needing to talk to me about that she's not saying when we're awake? I could answer you with superficial feelings based on the circumstances. But I could also answer your question a different way, based not on a superficial response, but deep feelings. I would tell you I love Heidi, that she's one of my most favorite people in the world, that she is wise and strong and more faithful than anyone I've known, that she is beautiful, the most uniquely beautiful person I've ever seen, and she is brave, unafraid of all that might keep someone from risking in love and in life. 
I could talk to you about the shallow or the deep feelings I have towards her. And this is how you discern the voice of God from the voice of the deceiver. Deep calls to deep. God appeals to the deepest longings within us, but our deceiver appeals to our shallow hungers. God nourishes the soul, but the deceiver massages the ego. The fourth century monk John Cassian wrote about becoming a prudent money changer. And in his day, the only currency was Roman coinage and counterfeit coins were common. So money changers had to become so familiar with the real thing that if you dropped the counterfeit in their hands, they'd feel the weight of it and that difference, they'd feel the engraving, they'd feel the specific metal. They had to become so familiar with the real thing that they could tell a counterfeit and tell it quickly. This, says Cassian, is one of the primary works of spiritual maturity. Become a prudent money changer. Grow so familiar with God's voice that you can tell a counterfeit and tell it quickly. That's discernment. Now, how do we become that? Well, it takes a little practice. So I'm gonna offer you two practices for growing in discernment, for tuning your ear to God's whisper. And the two practices are listening prayer and what we call the examine. Ready to start with listening prayer? You guys are doing great. Are you feeling good? Good, I felt a little emotional a second ago, but I pulled it together. Let's talk about listening prayer. Every morning as though you're dying to know, I make an espresso cup of coffee. Don't judge me, be quiet. Don't say anything, I don't need emails. I sit in the same chair in my living room every day. I hold up in my hands and I pray, come Holy Spirit. And then I wait. Usually, uh, when I do that, many distractions and to-dos begin to flood my mind. All the work tasks and the conversations I need to have float to the surface and all I'm trying to do is give them time just to settle. And then, after the busyness happens, sometimes a memory comes to my mind, Sometimes a word or a phrase or a passage of scripture. Um, Sometimes a picture specifically for someone or for me. Sometimes nothing at all. But whatever does come to mind, I trust it's God speaking. And then I just jot it down in my journal. And then I open the scriptures and I read. And I also jot down words or phrases that stand out to me uh, that I'm reflecting on throughout the day. And then I finally pray. uh, And when I do, it starts out the same way. Jesus, today I hear you talking to me about. Now, that's an important step in the life of prayer. When we grow from talking at God to talking with God. In my experience, few people mature into this stage of prayer, but it's not for lack of desire, but misconception. We want to hear God's voice to get acquainted with his whisper and to talk with him conversationally. The misconception that holds us back is that when God speaks, we expect it to be revelatory, like lightning striking or an out-of-body experience. And occasionally, it is that. But that's the exception, not the rule. In the words of psychotherapist and author Paula de Arce, God comes to us disguised as our ordinary life. What we call listening prayer here at Bridgetown and what's often referred to as silence or contemplative prayer in other traditions is first about revelation, is not first about revelation, but intimacy. Listening prayer is intimate because you are doing nothing 
but entirely opening yourself up to God. That's what this posture is all about. In listening prayer, your false self can't come, not invited to the party. Because as you come to God fully surrendered, you aren't speaking, so you can't present. You aren't doing, so you can't achieve. You're alone, so you can't compare. And you're not planning or securing or explaining or escaping. What you're doing, whether you want to or not, is dropping your fig leaves and returning to something like that of naked and unashamed before God, the state that you were made to live in. Listening prayer is about intimacy before it is about revelation. Jesus in Matthew chapter seven says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? That's a strong spiritual performance by any measure. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. In the words of the Trappist monk Thomas Merton, every one of us is shadowed by an illusionary person, a false self. This is the man that I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. And to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. You need to be still, quiet, listening to God, and not even first because God has something to say to you, which we believe he does, but first because you need to bring your true self into his loving presence. Through silence and stillness, a posture of passivity and surrender, of non-performance, we shed the false self in God's presence and in that naked vulnerability, something will begin to happen. Not immediately and not predictably, but for those of us who keep showing up day after day, working through the stages of distraction and overcoming the demand that God should deliver some immediate and effective productive response, for those of us who keep showing up in the increasing intimacy, your ear will begin to become tuned to God's frequency. That's what listening prayer is all about. In the wise words of Mark Thibodeau, if you ever get the opportunity to keep your mouth shut, don't pass it up. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. So now let's talk about the examine. The prayer of examine or the examination of consciousness as it's also called is a prayer derived from Saint Ignatius, typically practiced in the evening. Every tradition in church history has an unspoken primary or base spiritual practice. For Catholics, it's the mass. For evangelicals, it's the quiet time. For, Je for Jesuits, it's the examine. It's that central. And praying the examine is typically summed up in four steps. First, you review the day with God. Second, you ask, where did I feel furthest from God? Third, where did I feel nearest to God? And then fourth, in light of it all, what is one prayer I wanna pray for tomorrow? I practice the examine almost daily uh, as I'm getting into bed each night. It's my preferred time of day as a whole. Uh, <laughs> And as I lay down, I pray, Father, today I, and then I recount my day. Beginning with when I woke up and how I felt, and just as I would recount my day to a friend asking me to describe everything that had happened. And then I noticed the moment I felt furthest from God. A disagreement with a coworker, a moment when 
uh, I'd like to do it over, maybe it's with my best friend or somebody I love, a moment of entitlement or impatience, even if it wasn't acted upon outwardly. Then I moved to noticing the moment I felt nearest to God, a moment of prayer or a biblical insight in the quiet early morning, or particularly fulfilling a task at work that felt good to fulfill. Maybe it was lunch with a friend or a story I heard that increased my faith. And then, finally, in light of all of those things, really simply, I asked God for one thing for tomorrow. And sometimes it's more like repentance, God help me become, and other times it's a prayer of gratitude and expectation for what's ahead. We're told that hindsight is 2020. As true as this phrase tends to be in the way we navigate everyday life, it's equally true in the way we navigate our spirituality. God is most visible in hindsight. It's easier to perceive his presence looking back than it is in the moment. And practicing the examine is practicing recognizing God in hindsight that we might recognize him in the present. The practice of remembering when, on this day, that deep was calling to deep, when my heart was burning. As I learn to recognize God in hindsight, the most amazing thing happens. Slowly but surely, I learn to recognize God in the present, to know him, not just at the dinner table, but all along the road to Emmaus, to recognize him increasingly in all the moments when the Lord is about to pass by. In John chapter 10, we read that when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. This is the mark, the distinguishing quality of those of us who belong to Jesus, that we know his voice. But that's not all that Jesus says here in this chapter. He tells us that he's a good shepherd who leads us by his voice and equally a good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one to find those who don't recognize his voice, who never learn to hear or who get distracted or who stop listening somewhere along the way. He says he's a good shepherd who will wander with you. However far you need to go and however long you need to walk before you realize it's him. And it's his voice that has been chasing you down the whole way, eager to guide you home. Jesus says his voice is the distinguishing mark of all who belong to him. And Jesus says, there's no place you can go, no length you can wander, that he won't go after you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done or haven't done, you are not disqualified from hearing God's voice. In fact, he's coming after you, calling. It's his voice that brings you in, and it's his voice that leads you home.